Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And it sounds like she's held it really close to the vest about who she's thinking yeah. about for those impeachment I haven't managers. read a single name anywhere. It's it's kind of great. I mean, I applaud her for that. I think that's incredibly difficult to do in modern Washington. And so, well done. This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We have a lot to cover today in our main segment. We're going to talk about the rules in the Senate once an impeachment trial kicks off. We've had lots of questions about this. There has been ad nauseum discussion in the news of the political considerations. Today, we're going to talk about the actual legal and constitutional considerations. So that's the main segment. But before that, we'll go through some news of the week and we'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. Before we get started tonight is the Democratic debate. And as always, I will be on Instagram and Beth will be on Twitter. So if you're interested in joining the Pantsuit Politics community live as we watch the latest Democratic debate, join us there. And that's probably a good transition to the big news in the Democratic field, which is right before we started recording on Monday, Senator Cory Booker announced that he is suspending his campaign for president. As most of you know, Senator Booker was my top choice. He's the person that I have donated the most to and kept the most tabs on in terms of what his campaign is doing behind the scenes. So I am really bummed. And I just, I'm frustrated because this feels premature and unnecessary to me. But I also get that it is a hugely expensive thing to continue running a campaign, um, especially a campaign like this one, when the field doesn't show any signs of compressing in significant ways until 
deep into March. And so if you're not emerging from Iowa and New Hampshire with some momentum and you've been in the race a long time, I totally understand and respect the decision. I thank everyone who worked for the Booker campaign. I feel like they had some very important things to say and always respected the way they said it. I'm interested in the narrative over the weekend. Well, first, there was some conflict between Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, who have previously had a non-aggression pact and not been attacking each other. But there was reporting that Sanders volunteers were being sent out to attack Elizabeth Warren. There's been a lot of polling, including a Des Moines Register poll that showed Bernie Sanders surging in Iowa. And of course, he has some um, legs up, shall we say, in New Hampshire. I'm just interested in sort of this whole narrative because it does feel like we are losing candidates, especially diverse candidates, at pretty fast clip in the last few weeks. But there's still so many people left. And I think the idea that Iowa and New Hampshire are going to be predictive is such a dated one. Um, Not just because this year is different, but it's dated if you look back at the last two contests. I just I don't know why this well, Bernie's going to win Iowa and New Hampshire and then it's going to be over and he's going to be the candidate is still analysis out there because I think that is so short-sighted. I think there is still so much contest and that this could, even more than 2016, even more than 2008, could show that our primary stretch way beyond Iowa and New Hampshire. I think that's a good thing. I just think it's a thing that the process isn't keeping up with. Mm -hmm. The design of the debate stages, the design of the fundraising is all built for those early states to be more significant than I agree with you they might be this year. I don't watch a ton of TV. I can't turn on my television right now Mm -hmm. without seeing Mike Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. Say Mm -hmm. what you will about this strategy. I am very aware that Mike Bloomberg is running for president, and I am aware of the issues that he's talking about in terms of that campaign. I have spent no time doing research about Bloomberg's campaign beyond the way that he set up his internal media empire to deal with it. And just as a regular human voter in the world, I am getting hit with Mike Bloomberg constantly. It seems like everything I Google related to politics, the first search result on my screen has something to do with Bloomberg or Steyer. Those campaigns know what they're doing. No, I agree. We watch very little TV in my home, live TV in my home. And, you know, my husband was watching the NFL playoffs and Mike Bloomberg ads. We went out to a restaurant where they have that sort of cable news sports stuff on the television screens. What did I see? I saw a Steyer ad. I saw a Bloomberg ad. Um, It's just, it upsets me in the same way that when I read these articles about Bernie Sanders and I see the little parentheses, I dash NH makes me angry um, to see an independent surging in the polls and the nomination for the Democratic Party. Um, But hey, it is what it is. And I think, I hope that the increase in diverse candidates dropping out, the cliff between the enthusiasm and momentum for Andrew Yang and the way he's been covered, the way these debates seem to have played to the hands of Bernie Sanders and people who have run before, the way that you have billionaires entering the race and playing by different rules. I hope all this Um, gives everyone in the Democratic Party, and particularly the Democratic Party leadership, a lot of food for thought. What's wrong here? Um, What's right here? I'm not saying it's all wrong. Um, And what can we really think through as far as the process and changes we need to make moving forward? It also makes me think more about Senator Gillibrand, who who dropped out so Mm. early. And you wonder... What might be happening with her now? It's a completely different race than when she dropped out. Yep. You know, people love to complain about the long cycles here. There, there are some benefits to the long cycles. You can see people learning things and changing the way they a- approach voters. I'm not mad at anybody about growth and evolution. I'm, I'm completely over accusing people of being flip-floppers. Um, I think it's important to see how people handle this long process and... I don't know. I There just has to be a better way 
to get the benefits of the lengthy process without making it about who has the most money that gives them the staying power to get through all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we will be with you with the Democratic debate and the rest of this process as we travel to Iowa and New Hampshire and provide on the ground coverage and pantsuit politics insight. So we're excited for that. Y'all get excited for that. Now, there is a lot in the news, particularly with regards to natural disasters and areas of the world dealing with natural disasters that they've never had to deal with before, particularly in Puerto Rico, which has not recovered from Hurricane Maria, has not even gotten back inside from the two major earthquakes, and there are still aftershocks. I was reading reporting that one of the aftershocks was a five on the Richter scale, which seems like not an aftershock, seems like another earthquake. And just how terrifying it is, people are so scared to go inside buildings. They don't know how to deal with these earthquakes. Um, They're still not recovered from Hurricane Maria, like I said. I just I feel so powerfully for the people of Puerto Rico. In the Philippines, half a million people have been evacuated from areas near a volcano. The Australian fires continue to blaze. We do have the prime minister of Australia admitting now that perhaps he could have done some things better in handling this, which I think is a good Mm -hmm. development. We received a very important email about the impact of these fires on indigenous populations in Australia that we're going to share in our weekly newsletter. So be sure that you're subscribed so that you can get that information and those resources. There are severe storms in the United States, in the South and the Midwest. 11 people died over the weekend. There are thousands of people without power. A state of emergency has been declared in Arkansas. And so We just continue to be mindful of what's going on with climate and weather. And perhaps that's a good transition to talk about the House Democrats who rolled out a framework for climate legislation. This is being reported as sort of the establishment's answer to the Green New Deal. It is called the Clean Future Act and has been presented in the Energy and Commerce Committee. The intention is to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. It contains a clean electricity standard and forces utilities to provide 100% zero carbon power with escalating requirements beginning right now. Um, There are new requirements for states to submit plans showing how they'll meet these net zero emissions targets. There are requirements for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to weave climate into natural gas decisions. There are financial supports and requirements for low-carbon building codes and infrastructure and strong vehicle emissions rules and support for the EV infrastructure. And then you have a host of things related to the economy, a buy clean program, mandates for the oil and gas industry to cut methane emissions, a national climate bank to spur more investment in low carbon tech deployment. This plan does not have some of the traditional sort of carbon pricing features that have been discussed for a long time as an important way to deal with climate change. However, there are definitely some nods to cap and trade and some other features of sort of penalties for not meeting these requirements, the ability to buy and sell clean energy credits at auction. And so it's, it is an evolution of some of those older ideas, but they're still percolating in there. There were also some developments with regards to private industry and climate change that I think are worth pointing out. BlackRock became one of the largest and latest signatories to the Climate Action 100 Plus. Um, This is a $6.8 trillion asset management fund that's putting their weight and power behind these private industry climate change guidelines. And then another thing that I was really happy to see is that JetBlue is announcing it plans to be carbon neutral on all domestic flights beginning in July. And so the plan, the company's plan would involve taking steps to reduce its flights, overall carbon emissions, and increasing its investment in carbon offsets. But I was just, I was really struck by this initiative. I think it's really great. I feel a lot of guilt, I guess is probably the right word, every time we fly. And so let me tell you, I'll be looking at JetBlue more than I ever was before based on this initiative. It's comforting to see the market speaking on this and just sort of the Mm -hmm. tone changing from lots of corners. You know, I read um, some more conservative leaning, whatever that means in 2020. I read some more conservative (laughs) leaning intellectuals and and everyone seems to be driving toward, yeah, we've got to do something here. And Mm -hmm. let's do things that make sense. And let's do things that are fun and that have all these opportunities to rethink the way that we that we operate 
not just in service of the planet, but just in contemplation of a different world, you know, all kinds of technologies changing the way we do things. So I think it's exciting. I'm anxious to see what happens with the Clean Future Act. You know, there are, of course, people declaring it dead because of the Senate before it ever gets any legs. There's going to be a lot of internal party debate among House Democrats about this. I think this is an opportunity to do something on a bipartisan basis. I know that's a big lift, but there are ideas in here that I would hope many Republicans could get behind. So We'll see. But yay for action and serious conversation about it. Okay, we are now leaving the sort of fun and hopeful portion of the program and moving to Iran, where we have continuing developments with regards to the Ukrainian plane crash. Iran has now accepted responsibility. They say that it was an accident during the the heightened tensions between the U.S. and Iran and those ballistic missile strikes on the Iraqi air bases. But either way, the Iranian people are furious and protesting in the streets. Went from death to America to death to dictator. And what really, I don't know why this surprises me or blows my mind, but the idea that you would accidentally shoot down an airliner half full of your own citizens, sort of lie about it. Your citizens are furious, so they're protesting. And your response is to use rubber bullets and tear gas. And even some reports that the Iranian government is using live ammunition to stop these protests is just mind-boggling to me. I don't think the government sort of lied about it. I think they full-on lied about it because mm. we had days of it was some kind of technical it's failure. Oh, yeah. It's a mich- it's an engine failure. Mm-hmm. The way they describe this as an accident is kind of like the way sometimes my daughter tells me that she said something mean to her sister and that was an accident. Mm-hmm. Okay, you didn't intend the consequence of it, but you did intend to do it. I mean, they did intend mm-hmm. to shoot the plane down, right? They just thought right. that it was a different kind of plane. And so Carrie Anderson, our friend and kind of resident Middle East expert here at Fancy Politics, emailed us to say a huge driver of protest in the Middle East is governmental incompetence. It's hard to talk and write about because it's not super exciting, but incompetent leadership fuels many of these protests. And when you have incompetence that costs so many innocent people their lives, combined with lying to cover up that incompetence, it is a real problem. And Mm -hmm. I think this gets to something that I have been thinking about ever since we talked about sort of the conflict with the United States and Iran de-escalating. I guess it's de-escalating between our two governments, but more and more, I wonder how relevant governments are, particularly in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. ISIS was defeated largely by this collection of militias, non-governmental actors supported, to be sure, by governments. But it is often in the Middle East non-governmental actors who are making the biggest impact. And so I'm glad that the government of Iran is backing away from some threats. The government of the United States is cooling off. But there are lots and lots of people in the Middle East who are both unhappy with the Iranian government and the U.S. government. And that endangers all of our personnel there, and it endangers lots of civilians. So I, I don't like how we had this sense, we as a, I don't know, American public had this sense of, oh, okay, that's settled now, when it is far from settled. Well, and I am encouraged that there is sustained attention on the justification for the drone strike that killed General Soleimani over the weekend. President Trump went on Laura Ingram's show and said, oh, well, I think I can tell you guys now that he was planning a strike on four embassies. And then Secretary of Defense Mark Esper came on CBS and said, I saw no evidence of attacks on four embassies. And so they are still just working out in real time for all of us to see what reason they're going to use to justify killing this general of a sovereign nation who was a bad guy, but we don't go around killing leaders of sovereign nations just because they're bad guys. And I hope that that we continue to ask, that Congress continues to ask, because I think the idea that, oh, well, this is all wrapped up in a neat bow is 
completely false moving forward and neglects the attention consequences responsibility for the actions in the past that got us to that point. New York Times has a really helpful timeline of what administration officials have said about why Mm -hmm. they did the Soleimani hit. And you can hear, especially from Mike Pompeo, a sense of, we are allowed to do this because he's a bad guy. You are not Mm -hmm. entitled to more specificity than that. And it's it's important to read as an American citizen, especially as you think about the way we've operated in that region in the past and the consequences and fallout of these actions. So I completely agree with you that sustaining that attention is important. Also important to note that Hezbollah has said that all American bases in the area are vulnerable to attack and that shortly after that statement from Hezbollah, there was uh, rocket fire on Balad Air Base in Iraq, where both U.S. and Iraqi troops are housed. The reports say no troops were killed, and there's reporting from the Washington Post that there was some notice, a few minutes notice, to prepare for that attack. But there are going to be more stories like this, and we're probably not going to always connect the dots to what's happened over the last month or so. But Everything that's happening now is a continuation of history. We got an email from a listener who said, you know, honestly, probably you can't reasonably talk about the the timeline that brought us to today's events if you don't go back to at least the 1950s. And that person mm-hmm. is right. I mean, it, it, it is all related. And so to behave as though we can continue to dictate the terms of the conflict is so foolish. The president coming out on Twitter this weekend and almost rubbing Iran's faces in the protests shows such a misunderstanding of how that region operates. You know, hardliners in Iran already believe the United States is already behind all those protests. So we have the president of the United States tweeting about it in Farsi and threatening the Iranian regime to protect the protesters, that probably harms the protesters more than anything else he could do. It's just Mm -hmm. very frustrating to watch the way this has been managed. Quickly, before we move to another part of the world, I want to acknowledge as well that Americans are still dying in Afghanistan. We've had our first two deaths of 2020. Staff Sergeant Ian P. McLaughlin of Newport News, Virginia, who was 29 years old, and PFC Miguel A. Villalon of Joliet, Illinois, who was 21 years old, were killed on Saturday. Two other people were injured when a roadside bomb hit their vehicles. The Taliban says that it was responsible for the attack. We don't know if or how this will impact the start and stop negotiations the administration has been having with the Taliban. But after we read the Afghanistan papers reporting in the Washington Post, I have thought so much about this area of the world. And last year was particularly deadly for our troops in Afghanistan. We still have so many young people there serving our country. And so I just hated to receive this news and am thinking of all of the people who loved these individuals. Before we wrap up, we wanted to move to China in that area of the world. First, because there were elections in Taiwan over the weekend, and their president, Tsai Ing-wen, won re-election. She's the first female president in Taiwanese history. And this re-election was pretty resounding and a powerful message to Beijing, I think, from Taiwan that says, hey, we saw what was happening in Hong Kong. We're not looking to be dominated or shut down or have our freedoms limited. I read a really powerful post on a Facebook group I belong to of um, a Taiwanese-American man who immigrated decades ago and has lived in California for many, many, many years, who flew back to Taiwan to vote in this election because you have to vote in person because he felt it was so important to support the people of Taiwan and participate in this election. I thought that was such a powerful story and really speaks to the importance of this election. Our friend and listener Berta sent us a video, too, of how they count the ballots in Taiwanese elections. It's a very public process so that everyone has confidence in their results. You can hear a lot more about this election on Monday night's Nightly Nuance. So I talk about the history of Taiwan and China and what this might mean in the future. It's not a great look for Beijing, what happened in Mm -hmm. Taiwan. And this comes at a time when Beijing is dealing with all sorts of issues across the world. The United States has tension with China over purchasing Iranian oil, which China continues to do despite our sanctions. And 
Then we have this phase one trade agreement that the president says is just a big, beautiful monster deal mm-hmm. that is set to be signed with much fanfare this week. There is increasing, I think, international pressure about the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs and the oppression there. So I think there's many, many areas of conflict with regards to Beijing inside China and around the world. Beth, who are you complimenting this week? I wanted to compliment the CEO of the National Chamber of Commerce, Tom Donahue, who delivered the State of American Business Address last Thursday, during which he called for 35 bipartisan bills on climate change to be passed. So consistent with the conversation that we had earlier in this episode, it is nice to see some momentum from all corners from unexpected places like Mm -hmm. the Chamber of Commerce that has historically been solidly Republican. and solidly against measures that would restrict business in almost any way. And so this is, I think, a very welcome development. I'm excited about it. I want to compliment Professor Eaton Hirsch. He is a professor of political science at Tufts University and has written a new book out today, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. I got an advanced copy, finished it this weekend, and I cannot say enough good things about this book. I think it is a powerful condemnation of the way that we use politics for entertainment, something I think about a lot because we host a political podcast, um, and how we can use our work here to really affect change, how we can direct all of you who email us and say, but what can I do about this issue or how can I make a difference when it comes to this news story? And I think that he lays out one of the best cases that I have read for how to do just that, how to think about um, politics and how you interact with it in a way that is really about power and not just frustration or anxiety or hopelessness. And I cannot recommend this book enough. The link is in the show notes. And I really hope we're going to have Professor Hirsch on soon to talk about the book. Up next, we are going to talk about the Senate impeachment trial and what those specific constitutional and legal requirements are as we go into it. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? 
Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Before we start our conversation about the Senate rules for the impeachment trial, I think it is important to discuss Speaker Pelosi's decision to hold the articles of impeachment in an effort to get these rules, see what the rules were so that she could pick the right manager and make the right decisions. And there's a lot of reporting that says, oh, well, you know, she caved. Of course, Mitch McConnell was never going to um, work with her on the rules for the Senate. But to me, the fact that we are discussing the Senate impeachment rules at all, that many of the moderate senators who are up for re-election were forced to go on the record about what they see the Senate's job and the individual senator's role in this impeachment trial means maybe, probably, Nancy knew what she was doing all along, just saying. It's interesting to read articles. I read a local article from Maine about how Senator Collins is telling constituents that she's working with a small group of Republicans on ensuring that the way the trial proceeds is fair and comprehensive. Mm. I don't know. Did she share their names? She did not. Uh, dang. There would need to be four of them, at least, in that small group. Uh, I think small group sounds like four to me. The speculation that that I've seen out there is that Collins, Murkowski, Romney, and Gardner are the most likely people Mm -hmm. to vote with Democrats on any of what unfolds related to the procedure of the trial. I just don't know that that would be happening or at least written about if we hadn't had this delay to really focus on the rules. I think there is a a fatigue about everything related to Congress and a sensibility among members of the media that pretty much nothing matters across America. Voters are hardened. I got really fired up this morning about a Washington Post piece about the place where I live, Florence, Kentucky. Oh, yeah. It was such a one-dimensional portrayal of this area. They talked to all of the usual suspects in Republican politics here. And so what you got was a piece that made Kentuckians sound like all we care about is protecting the president. And I don't think that's true. But look, even if it is in some congressional districts or places in the country where it feels like nothing matters here, there are places where it does matter. And who wins some of those seats that are in areas where there's more of a contest really matters a lot to the composition and the power of Congress. And so anything that anyone does that gives us a little bit more space to think about hard mm-hmm. questions around how people use their power, I think is a is a fine and helpful thing to do. It's not like there's a right way to do this. You know, we don't we haven't done it enough times to say that it was wrong of her to hold these articles. I mean, I don't know that right or wrong exists here. I think what she did was probably effective for the purposes she intended. Well, as we record on Monday, it is reported that there will be a caucus meeting today as this podcast comes out on Tuesday, and she is expected to discuss the next steps on impeachment with the caucus and then most likely vote to send the articles and name impeachment managers later this week. And it sounds like she's held it really close to the vest about who she's thinking yeah. about for those impeachment managers. I haven't managers. read a single name anywhere. It's It's kind of great. I mean, I applaud her for that. I think that's incredibly difficult to do in modern Washington. And so, well done. So, once she does that and it goes over to the Senate, 
The impeachment trial clause of the Constitution commits to the Senate the sole power to trial all impeachments subject to three procedural requirements. The Senate shall be on oath or affirmation. The Chief Justice shall preside when the president is tried. And conviction shall be upon the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. That's it. That's, that's the constitutional rules. <laughs> yes. And it seems fair to conclude that the Senate can decide pretty much everything else about how they do that. No courts have really challenged the authority of the Senate to try impeachments. There are decisions regarding questions raised. One of these came from a case involving a judge named Walter Nixon. It's very confusing confusing. that the most important case about this is Nixon versus United States, but not Richard. But not that Nixon. (laughs) But basically what happened is that he was removed from office After the Senate adopted rules where they said, you know, this whole thing's taking a while. Let's use some trial committees to streamline the process. And so these committees can preside over the evidence. So take depositions, compile the record, look at the documents, and then the committees present that information to the full Senate. And Walter Nixon and other impeached judges said, I don't feel like I got my trial by the Senate as the Constitution requires. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you did. And we're not going to look at this because the sole power is given to the Senate. Now, one interesting footnote about that is that there were concurring opinions where justices said it is possible that the Senate could go about this in such a grossly neglectful way that there would be a role for judicial review. In talking about that, those justices sounded concern about just convicting people on partisan grounds, removing people from office without any consideration of evidence. But there are folks who are arguing that there is perhaps a door to say if a Republican Senate is so casual about the impeachment trial of Donald Trump that maybe there is a role for judicial review. I think it is a tiny, tiny opening left by those concurring opinions that the current Supreme Court is highly unlikely to walk through. But it is out there if you're interested yeah, I'm gonna in go this ahead kind and say, of thing. Not going to happen, but yeah. I appreciate I appreciate the analysis. The Senate conducts the impeachment trials based on the rules of procedure and practice in the Senate when sitting on impeachment trials. So they've put together their own little rule book. However, the phrase, quote, unless otherwise ordered by the Senate appears eight different times in these rules. And what does that mean? That means unless we change our mind. And that only requires a simple majority of senators to vote to change them. So... We have these rules, but there's a big footnote there when it comes to these rules. We're going to talk a lot about numbers in this process. Sarah just mentioned a simple majority can change the rules. The current Senate has 53 Republicans, 45 Democrats, and two independents. There are moderate Republicans that Mitch McConnell would like to prevent from having to go on the record. There is a lot that we do not know in terms of the record itself because the White House would not cooperate fully with the House investigation. And so there is some wiggle room around evidence coming into the process. But a supermajority, two-thirds, have to decide to convict and remove from office. Now, once a president is convicted and removed from office or any federal office holder subject to an impeachment process is convicted and removed— then only a simple majority can decide on the second remedy that the Senate has against that person, which is saying you may never serve in federal office again. I was thinking about this, the moderate Republicans, especially those up for reelection. And it is a tough election cycle for Republicans, tougher than it is for Democrats. And how much Mitch McConnell likes to protect them from going on the record, how much he likes to know what's going to happen and is usually looking several moves in front of him. And as I was thinking through that, I realized, man, there really is so much still out there, like John Bolton and what he has to say, like Lev Parnas's cell phone records, like particularly judicial decisions regarding the Trumps and their financial records and what those disclosing those financial records might reveal. And, you know, I think sitting through all the testimony 
and the impeachment trial in the House, there was a lot of it. And it was easy to feel like, well, we've really laid it all out there. But that's just not true. That is just not true. There is still so much we do not know. And so if you're Mitch McConnell and you're thinking through the rules governing witnesses and how this trial is going to progress, then you've got to be considering that. You've got to be considering that you cannot depend on Donald Trump to keep his mouth shut, that there could possibly be many more bombshells regarding this president and his actions and past actions. And I I just think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And this is where the rules become really important, and particularly the interpretation of the rules. Because the Senate rules in place right now were modified last in 1986. It's been a long time. I was five years old. And those (laughs) rules say something up front like presentation is limited to matters in the record. So what does that mean as it relates to the Trump presidency? I have no idea. The Mm -hmm. person who is charged at least ceremonially with making those decisions will be Chief Justice Roberts of the Supreme Court. So he will sit in and he will work with the parliamentarian of the Senate. Politico has a great profile of Mm -hmm. her. If you'd like to read about Elizabeth McDonough, we'll put the link in the show notes. And I highly encourage you to read about her. It's fascinating. But She will sit beside Chief Justice Roberts, and he will rule on objections that can be raised throughout the trial. However, if senators don't like what he says, they get to appeal that to themselves. And a simple majority of the Senate can change what Chief Justice Roberts decides throughout the course of the trial. So Republicans would like to use the Clinton impeachment as a blueprint. And during the Clinton impeachment, the senators agreed to a set of preliminary rules, which were the two sides presented their cases, the senators got to question the House trial managers and the White House lawyers, then any senator could make a motion to dismiss the articles or call witnesses, and they tabled the question of whether to call witnesses in the trial. The House filed a brief in support of the articles of impeachment, and Clinton filed an opposing brief. And you can read news stories right now about how the Trump team is working on their trial brief. That is the document I am most looking forward to reading in the next couple of weeks. All we know now is that Mitch McConnell says he has Republican senators on board for this preliminary phase, the first phase, the presentation of the case and the questions, but no witnesses yet. Now, it was more unanimous under the Clinton impeachment and everybody had agreed to the rules. But because it's just a simple majority needed to govern the rules, if he has all the Republicans on board with this phase one, then that seems to be the most likely way it will move forward. There is discussion happening about Senator Josh Hawley's motion to dismiss the impeachment. And we are likely to see a motion to dismiss the impeachment completely at some point in the trial as well. So when Clinton was impeached, we had three days of House managers presenting their case and three days of the defense presenting its case. Senators ask questions for two days, but this isn't the kind of fiery spectacle we see in House hearings. The questions have to be written down and given to the chief justice to read to the party being questioned. So that significantly alters the dynamic. In Clinton's impeachment, there were 150 questions submitted. After the House managers and the White House lawyers were questioned by senators when Clinton was impeached, you had a senator moving to dismiss the impeachment charges, and then another motion to call witnesses to the trial. And the Senate, I think it's important to hear this about the Clinton impeachment as we go into the Trump impeachment, because a lot of what happens is going to feel unprecedented, and maybe it will be less unprecedented than we think. The senators deliberated on both of those topics, dismissal or calling witnesses, in private session. The the motion to dismiss failed on a party-line vote, 56-44, and the same motion passed the motion to dispose witnesses. So then there were three days of videotaped depositions being conducted of three witnesses, and the Senate voted not on party lines here, 70-30, that excerpts of those videos would be fine rather than having live testimony of witnesses at trial. And the reason I wanted to walk through that history is because I think, Sarah, and tell me if you disagree, that when we discuss 
the idea of John Bolton perhaps coming to testify, I think we all have in mind this really theatrical dynamic, who knows what's going to happen testimony. And I don't know that anyone in the Senate is going to want that. And I think it is more likely that if he were allowed to testify, it might be in this format of closed deposition. Maybe we see some video excerpts, but not sort of Mm -hmm. the panel of senators firing questions away at John Bolton that comes to mind as you read the articles. I totally agree. I don't think that necessarily could lessen the overall impact of what he has to say. It just won't be as sexy as the House hearings were. But depending on what John Bolton has to say, it still could be pretty explosive. There's just a lot of ifs. If they Mm -hmm. let him testify, if they send him a subpoena, if he complies as he said he would, uh, if he testifies truthfully... I'm struggling to get real excited about any of this because it seems so clear to me from the conduct of these proceedings in the House that we know what the story is. And maybe there are details that could make the story seem worse. But as to these two articles of impeachment, the way the president dealt with Ukraine and his obstruction related to those dealings, I have trouble imagining that anyone's understanding of it is going to be significantly aided by new evidence. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. See, I think I disagree with you. I think at the end of the day, the evidence we have doesn't come from firsthand Trump administration officials except for Ambassador Sondland. I think Lev Parnas is looking to make a deal. There are lots of murmurings about what could be on his particular cell phone records, not just with regards to Trump administration officials, but with Trump himself. This is all speculation. But I think there's a distinction here. The distinction is between do we know everything and is it and do we know enough to know it was bad impeachable behavior? And I don't disagree with you that we don't need any more evidence to prove that Donald Trump and his administration abused their power and obstructed Congress. But that's a different question with regards to how explosive could the evidence be in the universe of possibility. You know, like, I think we have enough, I agree. But I think the story and the attention of the American public and the difficulty of these moderate senators and the positions they take could change if you got stronger, firsthand, more powerful evidence and testimony. So if that happened in whatever form it took, then there would be closing arguments. Again, if we're following the Clinton blueprint, as Senator McConnell says he would like to do, there would be closing arguments and and then a vote on how senators would deliberate. In the Clinton impeachment trial, senators voted to deliberate behind closed doors. And three days later, they emerged and voted. 45 people voted to convict Clinton on perjury. 50 voted to convict on obstruction. You would need 67 to remove from office. And so it was it was over at that point. And I wonder what the reaction from the public would be today if you had closed-door deliberations. It's hard to even fathom the Senate wanting to work that way in this kind of environment. Certainly, I think people will be working cable news constantly. This president just seems like a person who would want, you know, made-for-ratings Senate deliberations. But I sort of love that this is how it unfolded in the Clinton era, and there's something about me that wishes that we could have that kind of Senate again, where there was some care for the institution and thinking about how the institution would be best served occasionally with the door closed. I'm not hopeful that Mitch McConnell is doing anything to protect the institution. I think Mitch McConnell only works to protect his own power. Well, we will be here as this Senate trial unfolds and we see what the simple majority decides to do with regards to witnesses and phase two of the Senate trial and how they handle evidence and these deliberations. So stick with us, guys, as we move forward into this very historic moment in American history. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? So I'm thinking about knitwear. Stay with me here. Um, First, I finished my sweater (laughs) that I have been knitting since our book came out over a year ago. It was my interview sweater when we were in radio interviews or other podcast interviews and I needed something to um, keep my attention. I would work on this sweater. I've never knitted a sweater before. Um, it was a lot of knitting. I will link to the pattern in the show notes for all you knitters out there. And But I finished the sweater, and I also went and saw Little Women this weekend, which is brilliant and well-written and well-directed and well-acted and a testament to Louisa May Alcott's work and also featured a parade of the most amazing knitwear. <laughs> they wear these amazing, like, crisscross shawls that they tie in the back or, like, Laura Dern has one she sort of ties over to one side. Just the costuming is so beautiful and so well done. And so I was, like, looking at some other sweaters. I started knitting on another project. And so I've just been in a knitting frame of mind. Do you knit? I do not knit, but I was thinking about how I think some of what you love about knitting I probably get from cooking. 
just that attachment to something mm-hmm. really tangible that you're doing with your hands and you can see the progress as it's unfolding. Yep. Well, and here, let me say this. I have an additional knitwear thing I've been thinking about. So when I went to get um, my blocking wires, which I've never used before, just how you finish a sweater. Anyway, I went to my local knitting shop, Itty Bitty Knitty, and the owner told me that she's thinking about selling. And I told her, I bet we might have some people in the Pantsu Politics audience who are dedicated knitters, who've always had a dream of owning a knitting shop, and who have heard me for several years talk about what a fabulous place Paducah, Kentucky is to live. So if you are one of those people out there, let me know, and I'll hook you up with the owner of Itty Bitty Knitty Shop, and you can buy it and move to Paducah, and it'll be amazing. We can be best friends. Sarah Stewart Holland, business broker. That's right. Uh, Well, I have been thinking a lot about cooking, actually, when I was thinking about what I wanted to share outside of politics. I would like to share my new love and conviction about pearl onions, which I Mm. think are severely underappreciated. I totally agree with you. So I had a lot of pearl onions because for New Year's Eve, we had some friends over and I made beef bourguignon, Julia Child's recipe, and it has pearl onions in it, but it has a very specific amount. The recipe calls for 18 to 24 pearl onions, (laughs) and you bathe them in butter with this little herb bouquet for a very long time, and they become like these little spheres of perfect flavor and texture as you make your way through this complex and rich and lovely beef bourguignon. So I had a lot of pearl onions left over from that, and I've just been putting them in random things. They are delicious in everything that I've added them to. I made uh, Korean bimibap, and added them to that. I just sauteed them in olive oil and tossed them in. They were fantastic. I put them in. Kendra, the lazy genius, shared her favorite lunch, which is a chickpea curry. I added some of my pearl onions to that chickpea curry. It was sensational. I'll put the link to her blog post with that recipe in the show notes. It came together in like 15 minutes, and she describes it as a plate as a flavor bomb, and she's not lying. There's so much flavor that develops so quickly in this recipe, and I just think think pearl onions belong in pretty much everything now. And I'm delighted about it. The other thing that I learned over New Year's and doing a lot of time in the kitchen is that I think the air fryer is the best way to prepare beets. Hmm. I love beets, especially in salads. And I do not like the process of trying to prepare beets. And I know that people say, you know, you roast it in the oven and then the skin comes off easily and it's no big deal. Fine. But I just want to tell you that I think the flavor was better when I roasted them in my air fryer. I just scrubbed the outside of the beets. I sprinkled them with sea salt, put them in the air fryer for 45 minutes. They came out so easy to get the skin off, so easy to slice up, and absolutely Absolutely delicious. Sweet, still a little bit of bite to them. Fabulous. So there you go. Pearl onions and beets. That's what I'm thinking about. Love it. I do like pearl onions. I think they're sweeter. You know, I love onions, but I just feel like the line from perfect addition to overpowering is very thin when it comes to onions, specifically red onions. But I love pearl onions. I think they're always sweet and delicious. So I... Totally and completely support your love of pearl onions. They take less of a careful hand than other onions. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And they, they're they really good at picking up the flavor of the thing around them. So, yes, love it. And I just, I like this sort of focus on homekeeping now and then. I've always kind of struggled with what's the right balance of being more outside the home career driven and inside the home caretaking. And I feel like I'm at this place in my life where those two things are blending in ways I feel really good about. And it's nice. It's it's a relief. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We'll be back in your ears tomorrow over on The Nuance Life. Join us for the debate tonight. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise.
We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.